0: Thank you, worship team. That is one of my favorite songs. And it's... If I could, I think I would sing it every day in church and every Sunday in church because it, by itself, even though it is very short, it's just three verses, it captures, it manages to capture the entirety of the Christian life. And that's why I chose it. I chose it to... To preface this sermon, even though it might have been better fit right after the assurance of pardon, I chose it because it does capture that entirety of the Christian life. And that's what we're talking about today. Today, our passage is from Philippians chapter 3. This is Paul as he's trying to answer this question how do we live this Christian life? And so let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, Lord, you have prepared this day for us before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, Lord, you planned this day. You planned this worship service. You did it all so that you uh, would glorify your Son and that your Son would glorify you. Lord, you didn't stop there, but you invited us into it. And we ask, Lord, as we turn to the preaching of your word, that through the work of the Holy Spirit, you awaken us, Lord. You awaken us to receive the word that you have. Let your word settle in our heart and convict us where we need conviction. And give us the sweet, sweet balm of assurance of your love where we need that. Lord, we praise you and thank you. Amen. So, like I said, we are studying Philippians chapter 3, and this is answering the question of how we live the Christian life. But before we jump in to the passage itself, you know, I'm, I'm big on context, and so I'd like to give you just a little bit of context for what we're studying. So, the, the letter is to the Philippians, and we actually hear, from, uh, hear about sorry, the Philippians all the way back in Acts chapter uh, 16. So right before Acts chapter 16 is, of course, 15. Coincidental, I know. Um, and this is the Jerusalem Council, and this is when Paul was commissioned and sent out as an apostle to the gentiles and one of his first stops that we see in acts chapter 16 is in the city of philippi and he gets off to a roaring start he preaches a sermon and lydia is converted and then he casts a demon out of a slave girl and the owner of the girl he didn't really like that too much and so he pressed charges against Paul and had Paul thrown in prison. And then we see this great salvation from prison as an earthquake strikes and loosens all of the chains and opens every door. And then after the earthquake, in the wake of it, the jailer is getting ready to commit suicide because he thinks that all of the, all of the prisoners have escaped. And Paul... Assures him, no, they haven't escaped. And then converts the jailer. And goes and baptizes the jailer and his entire family. His entire household. And that's the city that Paul is writing to. That happened right around the time of 50 AD. And now Paul is writing to them. It's 12 years later, 14 years later. Paul is in prison. He's been in prison. He's probably in Rome. It's probably at the end of his life. He seems to know that he's going to die. And the Philippians heard about him being in prison. And they took pity on him. And had mercy and compassion. And they sent one of their brethren to him. Epaphroditus. And they sent him with gifts. To make his stay in prison more comfortable. More bearable. And... They sent Epaphroditus to him to minister to Paul. And Paul is now sending Epaphroditus back to the Philippians, thanking them for their gifts. He's sending Timothy to them because he can't come himself. And he's trying to encourage them. He's trying to reassure them that even though he is in prison, even though he is suffering, he is suffering for Christ. And that suffering for Christ is powerful. And it's not proof at all that the word of the Lord is not going out or that Paul has been abandoned by the Lord. And Paul, as he often does, he anticipates their questions. You see this a lot in his letters. That he'll make these huge statements and then before they can even ask a question, before it fully forms in their their brain... He answers the question. And the question that's just kind of resounding around the Philippians is: you know, how is it that you are coping there in prison? They see his faith, they see how he's coping, and they say, Paul, how do you live like that? How do you have so much joy in the depth of sorrow in prison? Why aren't you discouraged, Paul? How, Paul, how do we live this Christian life? Let's see now how Paul answers them. This is Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 12. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Paul says Whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But God's word stands forever. Let us turn our attention to it. You may be seated. So... The question is, how do we live this Christian life? And I'd like to draw three things out of this passage as as we look at Paul's answer. We're gonna look at what it means, what Paul means when he says that he presses on, that he presses on toward the goal. We're gonna look at the distractions that distract us from the Christian life, those dangerous distractions. And we're gonna look at that prize, that destination that we have. So what it means to press on the distractions and our destination. So what does Paul mean here when he says press on? What does it mean to press on? And before we answer that, there's, it's, there's another bit of context that's just kind of important to realize. As Paul has laid out this passage, he's actually using a metaphor, and it's a, it's a running metaphor, um, that, that was a pun if you got that. No, it, it's a metaphor of running a race, and it's not super apparent in English, but it's very apparent in Greek because of the words that Paul uses, and it's going to come up again and again that this is a race that we are running, it's kind of like a marathon. So what does Paul mean here? Well, as is often the case, it's usually easier to point out what he doesn't mean first. There are many, many things that people have come up with that he doesn't mean. You know, I went to Oklahoma Wesleyan, and they are dear, sweet people, but their theology is a little wonky, and the way they read the Bible is just a little bit off. And at Oklahoma Wesleyan, they have... This this thought that's common actually in holiness denominations like theirs, this, this this teaching of entire sanctification. Entire sanctification is the sense in which there's some way, through the work of the Holy Spirit, that you can actually be sinless in this life. That as you go forward you will not sin anymore as you walk with the Spirit, that you have reached that level of sanctification. And they might say that it may be rare, but Paul here wouldn't be striving for it if it, if it wasn't possible. And they interpret what Paul is striving for in that first verse. Is that perfection? Is that entire sanctification? It's unfortunate for them that he actually explicitly contradicts it. If we go back just a little bit into the passage, back starting in verse 3, we can read kind of the setup to this section. And we see, "...for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have a reason for confidence in the flesh also." If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. trashes that wesleyan view that paul is actually striving for perfection in this life that he believes that he can attain it there's also another way that he contradicts this if we look in our passage at verse 15 let those of us who are mature think this way and if anything if in anything you think otherwise god will reveal that also to you now it doesn't come out here in english because the ESV is trying to, trying to kind of clean things up, because Paul here seems to contradict himself. If we look back to verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained, it, obtained this, or I am already perfect. But that word mature in Greek actually more rightly is translated as perfect. And if we translate it that way, 15 brings out this apparent contradiction that paul has it says let those of us who are perfect think this way now of course paul isn't contradicting himself he's actually working with a play on words here he's making a little bit of a pun actually though maybe it's not meant to be you know super funny He's saying that those who are perfect are those with the righteousness of Christ. And it's only those who are perfect, only those who realize that they are not perfect that have the righteousness of Christ. Because if you think you are perfect, you are actually relying upon your work, you are not relying upon Christ. So that's one thing that he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that he's striving after, pressing on toward a sense of perfection, toward a sense of entire sanctification. But there is another way that people have interpreted this passage that also doesn't really hold any water. They say that Paul wasn't actually sure that he was saved. That this indicates right here that Paul had no assurance of faith, and in fact, that he was working for his faith. And that's what the pressing on, that's what the striving to make it his own was, that he was striving to make salvation his own. Now, of course, we know that that's that's false, but this is easy to fall into. It's an easy interpretation to get off on, because... In other parts of Paul's writing, it becomes very evident that we're supposed to evaluate our faith by our walk. That in some way, we look at our works as a reflection of what we believe. And yet, we are never to base our salvation on our works because our salvation is only found in, in Christ and his righteousness, not in our work. He also contradicts this thought explicitly right at the beginning in verse 12. I wonder if you notice it. He says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Right there, he identifies that Christ, Christ has died for him. Christ has him. That he is the Lord's. And so he can't be striving for this sense of perfection. He can't be striving for this sense of assurance. No, he can't. So, what does he mean? Well, let's look at verse 14. He says, But I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then, if we look at verses 10 and 11 in that passage before, he says, That I may know the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What's he saying? He's saying that he's pressing on to get to know Jesus better. He knows that Jesus has claimed him. He knows that Jesus is his Lord. He is pressing on so that he knows Jesus better. That's is what he is pressing into. He hasn't obtained that perfection of knowledge of his Savior. He doesn't have all the blessings of being saved yet, but he's pressing on. He hasn't been resurrected yet, because he hasn't died. He hasn't finished suffering yet, so he hasn't finished identifying with Christ. But every step he takes in that foot race, every step brings him closer and closer to Jesus. And he loves that. And it gives him this great power in his Christian walk. And even as he suffers in prison, because his eyes are fixated upon Jesus, his suffering is nothing to him. Even the prospect that he might die. He starts out the letter by saying things like, to live is Christ and to die is gain he doesn't count his sufferings as anything isn't that an awesome way to look at suffering by the way it imbues it with so much meaning that even if we don't understand why we suffer we do understand that as we suffer for Christ it actually brings us closer to him that as we suffer for Christ, it makes us more and more like our Savior. And as we become more and more like our Savior, we know him better and better and better. And as Paul says in verse 17, he says, Brothers, join, me in, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us we as Christians are to be imitators of him. And all those who walk in his example, and we rest in that knowledge that we are saved, but that knowledge motivates us not toward being lazy, toward being complacent. It motivates us to moving toward Jesus more and more in our life. So that's what Paul means when he talks about pressing on. But he doesn't just leave it at that. He addresses the dangers of distraction here. You know, many of these dangers, many of these distractions can actually be drawn out. But if we look in broad categories, I think it helps us um, kind of boil these down. And there are two general categories here. And the categories are the tried and true legalism. And antinomianism. It's works based salvation, easy believism. And those are the two things that he's addressing here. So let's start with legalism. Where do we see that? If you look at verse 13, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Yeah. So, how is that legalism? Where is the legalism there? Well, go back to that image of him running this marathon race, running this foot race. What does he mean? He's forgetting what lies behind. He's forgetting what lies behind. That means he's not looking behind him. He's not remembering what he's passed. This is a metaphor, of course. And... It's not that he forgot everything that he's gone through that got him to prison. It's not that he forgot all of the good things that he has done with the help of the Holy Spirit. It's not that he forgot all of the letters that he wrote. It's not that he forgot all of the churches that he planted. And it's not even that he forgot all of the sins that he committed. They didn't just fall out of his head. He is actively forgetting everything. Because it isn't important to his race. And why does he do that? Because looking at your past... Looking at your past in this way is looking at your work. It's looking at your record. It's looking at where you've been, the obstacles that you have conquered or failed in. And when you do that, when you look at it that way, you will almost inevitably, almost inevitably... You will judge your race by your work. And you will judge your salvation by your work. You will either look at all of the good things that you have done and fall into pride, which is legalism. Or you will look at all the bad things that you have done and fall into despair, because how could you be saved? Which, again, is legalism looking to your own record and even in prison even when he's suffering so much even when he doesn't seem to have so much time for ministry he's still not ruminating on the past he's still not congratulating himself about all the things that he has done now dennis johnson kind of sums this up in kind of a profound way i I really liked this section of, of his book on Philippians. He says, Paul did not keep turning over in his mind the good old days of active service before he was imprisoned. He did not constantly remind himself of all of his achievements nor continually recount those special high points of his intimate relationship with Christ. He is not distracted by the trophies of the past. Forgetting for Paul is not a passive loss of memory. No, it is an active Continuous discipline of the mind and heart. Although he did not actually forget the past, he emphatically chose to disregard it. It's not important to his race. Looking at the past that way is a distraction, and it's a distraction that Paul will not have, and we are to imitate him in that. Keeping up again with this. With this metaphor of running a race, what happens? I mean, maybe you can, you know, cast your mind back to when you were a little kid. I, I I actually have done this as an adult. But what happens when you're running, and you look back, you fall, you trip, you run into something, your race ends, you stumble. That's what happens every time that you look away from your goal so we're not have confidence in <clears throat> our salvation according to our own work but that doesn't mean that our work isn't important which leaves this door open to something else that he has to address and that's that easy believism, that antinomianism that thing that says that once saved always saved and I don't have to work at all. And we see that here in verses 18 and 19. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That's Antinomianism. The word belly here can be translated not just as, you know, like the physical organ of the stomach. It's actually translated many times in Scripture, uh, in Paul's writings, particularly in Romans, as appetite. So he's not just going after gluttony here. He's talking about any bad appetite, any sinful appetite, whether that be food, sex, power, money, anything. They glory in their shame. Now, if you go back to your knowledge of Galatians, sorry, Corinthians, you know, those people were actually glorifying in the fact that because they were saved, they could send it up, and they loved that. They loved that. They shout, freedom! Freedom! We don't have any rules, any laws anymore. Mind set on earthly things. And that just takes us right back to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Sorry, not the Sermon on the Mount, the parable of the soils when he talks about the seed of the gospel being choked out by the thorns and weeds on the path. And this is not to say that our appetites are bad, by the way. That's not what he's saying. Sometimes our appetites are bad. Sometimes we lust for things that are wrong. But often, our appetites are actually good. The things that we want are good. And many times, they're actually gifts from God. Nor are all earthly things bad. No. Many of the earthly things that we have are gifts from God. What is bad is having our minds set on them. I love C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. He he says this, he says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong. He doesn't find our appetites too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. What is Lewis saying there? He's saying that our appetites aren't bad, but when we focus on them, we're focusing on small joys when we could be focusing on a, a great joy. We've set our mind on earthly things rather than setting our mind on heavenly things. So the past, when we look at that, and we evaluate ourselves according to our past, we're taking our eyes off Jesus, we're looking back. And when we look at earthly things, we're taking our eyes off Jesus and we're looking at the earthly things. So what about our destination? What about that prize? What is our goal here Well, there are actually two destinations mentioned here. Two destinations mentioned here. If we look at verse 19, it's talking about the the antinomians, the people who are, well, they're Christian in name. And freedom is their cry. And he says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You know, Esther and I, for Christmas, um, we got as a family, well, it was more the kids, but we got a copy of the Pilgrim's Progress, and it's a special copy of the Pilgrim's Progress with all these beautiful animations, and it's a bridge, and it's made for children, and it is amazing, and we've been reading through it for our nightly devotionals. And one of the things that Bunyan hits on here when he hits on... Um, the christian life his main character whose name is christian is leaving the city of destruction and going to the celestial city and that city of destruction is what paul is talking about here when you set your mind on earthly things when you look to the past You are actually being in the city of destruction. You are not on the path to the celestial city in Bunyan's mind. And I think he's correct. He does this brilliantly, too. Like the entire thing is an allegory. But every single time that Christian takes his eyes off of the celestial city, every time he starts looking to where he's been or he starts looking to anything else, or even when he just becomes lazy. Every time he goes off the rails, God saves him every time because he is Christ's brother and God will not abandon him. So, that second destination, though, that second destination is the celestial city that Bunyan talks about. We see that here in verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that we actually have a citizenship that is not of this world. He's saying that our citizenship is in heaven. And that's what we're striving toward. He goes beyond that because... To be part of that celestial city, to have that citizenship, inevitably means that you have been adopted into God's family, that you have been made an heir of God's family, that Jesus has bound you to himself so closely that you are part of his family. You have that adoption. And the next thing that he talks about is striving toward is because you have your citizenship in the heavenly city because you are adopted into the family of God. Jesus is actually going to give you a new body. A new body like his, imperishable, glorified. And finally, and most importantly for Paul, we have a returning savior. A savior that is coming back a Savior that he can get to know better, that as he lives his life, as he keeps his eyes fixated upon Jesus, he gets to know better and better and better. And this Savior, who has already claimed him as his own, is coming back. And that Paul is going to be with him in that celestial city forever and ever. And ultimately, he's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. So that's, that's our goal. That's our prize. That's our destination. Our motivation is to know the Savior better. Which is great. But there's another, there's another little niggling question here. What do, we do, what do we do when we fail? What do we do when we actually take our eyes off of Jesus? When we look back? or set our mind on earthly things. See, you're going to fail. That's just part of the Christian life. And it's part of the Christian life because we are a broken, fallen people. We have been marred by sin. And though we are forgiven in Christ, we still deal with that brokenness. We still deal with that sin. Every day, every hour, every minute. So what do we do when Satan tempts us to look back and admire our past? When he he tempts us in an effort to bolster our pride, to say, look at all the good things you did. Well, we use our fighting words. Ellie Holcomb has this awesome song, it's called Fighting Words. I suggest you listen to it if you hadn't heard it, but it's all about talking back to Satan talking back to her own mind, her own broken mind. And it's using scripture to address what is, she is being accused of. We use our fighting words. We remind ourselves when Satan tries to bolster our pride to look at our past, that any good work that we have done, anything that we have done that is good is considered as filthy rags before our Lord and Savior because our righteousness is stained. It cannot measure up. The only good work, as the Westminster Confession says, the only way it can be good is if it's empowered by the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit has entered into that work and is accomplishing it in us. Which means, by the way, that they're actually God's works. Which is what Paul says elsewhere. That... They are good works that have been prepared for us before the foundation of the world. And we say that. say that we cannot glorify in our good works. And that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by our work, but by His. What do we do when Satan draws our gaze again to the past, but instead of bolstering our pride, he condemns us with our failures. Again, we use those fighting words, we we remind ourselves that we are not saved by our works. No. We are saved by his work. We are clothed in his righteousness, not ours. That's where we put our hope, in Jesus and his finished work. What about when we are tempted into sin with a whisper, that we are free in Christ. We whisper back, shout back, that it is for freedom we have been set free and we will not submit again to the yoke of slavery because we have been given the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us and he empowers us. And we do not have to be led around by a chain by Satan. We have we look up and we see that we're actually maybe straying off the path. We remind ourselves that our riches are are in Christ. That the reward is waiting for us. And that reward is to be with him forever. The one who loves us most. And the more we do this, the easier it becomes. It never becomes easy, by the way. It never becomes easy. That is the Christian life. Even for Paul, it was not easy. But it does become easier because the more we do it, the more we become like Jesus. And the more we become like Jesus, the more repulsive our sin is to us. And also, the longer we do it, the more powerful our walk will be. Look at Paul. Look at Paul and his example, the example that we're supposed to follow after and the power that came from fixating upon Jesus. Here he is in prison. Here he is in Rome, probably chained to a guard, never left alone, never really gets to go out. He knows he's going to die. And yet, look at how he ends the letter of Philippians. If you go to verse 20, 21, sorry, of chapter 4, he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those in Caesar's household. The power that he had in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his imprisonment, by fixating on Jesus, by seeing Jesus only, and running that race, actually led the members of Caesar's household to be converted. That is amazing. He's in the heart of the enemy's city. And yet, the enemy does not win because the Holy Spirit is with Paul. The Holy Spirit is keeping his gaze fixated on Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is accomplishing great things through him. That's a powerful walk. And that is one of the benefits of keeping your eyes on Jesus. Let us pray. Father, Lord, Lord, your promises are too much for us. We don't deserve them. We don't deserve them. And yet you have lavished them upon us. Lord, as we go about our lives for the rest of the day, the rest of the week, our entire life, Lord, we ask that you keep our eyes on our Savior. Let us, let us look at him, fixate on him and run this race well knowing, Lord, that everything that happens to us is in your control and it's so in your control, Lord, that you declared the ending from the beginning that before the foundation of the world all of our days were written in your book and we have nothing to fear because we have Jesus and Jesus has won He shouted out on the cross, it is finished. Give us, Lord, the faith to trust in that, the faith to believe that. Holy Spirit, Lord, we know that you are with us. We know that you bind us to our Savior. We know that you empower us. Lord, We also know that we are sinful people. But that you who are with us, pray with us and for us. Holy Spirit, make us more and more like Jesus every day. Let us run this race well. Amen.